In our last podcast, we spoke with our own resident knowledge management specialist, Nicola Balvin, about the Adolescent Brain Compendium, what it is, how it came about, and why it's important for research on adolescents today. Nicola gave a broad overview of this groundbreaking publication, and today we'd like to go a little bit deeper to continue discussing these emerging topics on adolescent research by interviewing one of the compendium's authors, Ron Dahl, on some of the new ideas to come out of the publication. In this podcast, we'll learn about what modifiable developmental processes are and discuss how adolescence creates opportunities for positive and negative spirals. Ron Dahl is the director of the Institute of Human Development and the director of the Center of the Developing Adolescent, as well as professor of community health sciences, all at the University of California at Berkeley. Before running these programs at UC Berkeley, Ron trained as a pediatrician and worked in the School of Medicine at the intersection of child psychiatry, pediatrics, and developmental clinical psychology, and it is my pleasure to have him join us today to discuss his contribution to the Adolescent Brain Compendium and the emerging research on adolescent neuroscience today. So without further ado, let's uh, give him a call. Again, thank you for joining us. So we're really interested in unpacking some of the key messages from the Adolescent Brain Compendium. And as you were one of the key persons involved in providing commentary, but also in the symposium, you were recommended. So thank you. And we're really looking forward to hearing some of your expertise on this topic. So to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at the UC Berkeley Center on the Developing Adolescent? Yes, thank you. I'm, I really welcome this opportunity to share some of our ideas and perspective on how understanding the adolescent brain can really inform a number of practical and important questions about helping to create positive trajectories in young people's lives. My work, I've worked for about 20, more than 25 years uh, in this general area, trying to think about early intervention and prevention and how adolescence is a key window. And when we began the Center of the Developing Adolescence, to a large degree, what we were trying to do is shift from a problem-based focus, the idea that there's something wrong with the adolescent brain, it's underdeveloped, or it's imbalanced, or it's flawed in some way, and that explains adolescent risk behaviors and problems, and, and to flip that around and to understand that the adolescent brain is remarkably adaptive. It, it's, it's a system that facilitates a wide range of very positive opportunities for learning and adaptation. And it's really, I think it's very helpful to show how the neuroscience and the understanding of development really emphasizes the positive, not the negative. And increasingly, what we've also been recognizing that there's a great deal of value in working on is the translation of that work into the complex, gnarly, real-world settings. For those of us trying to make a difference for young people, whether that's in clinical settings or public health settings or global settings or high-risk settings or just promoting education, these are complicated issues. And so simple models of what's wrong with the brain or what needs to be done aren't very helpful. And so we, we created the Center of the Developing Adolescent in recognition that it requires teams of people that want to work at that interface. They really want to not just simply translate the neuroscience into something useful or simply you know, reduce these complex problems um, helping youth into you know, simple scientific questions, but rather develop broad and deep expertise at that interface. And that requires people who really want to, to in essence, operate or live professionally in that interface, uh, which is a, 
complicated place to be. And so the goal of the center is really to help create a team of people interested in going back and forth between the real world issues that can be informed by developmental science and developmental neuroscience, and what do we really understand that creates insights into opportunities for promoting positive trajectories during these key windows of time. How did you get involved in the Adolescent Brain Symposium and subsequent compendium? So the uh, engagement with the, the team of people uh, in this project really came about because we were increasingly recognizing that the that the science of the center, uh, this understanding of how developmental windows can inform more effective prevention, early intervention, and, 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 and health promotion, was particularly resonant in the global and developing settings uh, for young people, as there's been growing recognition that early brain development has provided important insights for very young children and, and, and this investment in the perinatal period and then early development because people recognize that the plasticity in the brain is so important in terms of how we think about positive early experiences and scaffolding for it both nutritionally and health-wise as well as socially for young children, that the same general points are very relevant to this second wave of, of developmental changes at the onset of puberty. And that is that as we understand this as a period of plasticity and learning and rapid adaptation, that investing in the second decade of life broadly, but I think even more specifically in this transition from childhood into adolescence, has a lot of valuable messages for people you know, in UNICEF and uh, working in global settings, the World Bank, and that helping to communicate the developmental science in a helpful and careful way in terms of how it can offer insights has value. And so we became engaged with a number of people working in this space to say, how can this developmental science really help not only support policies for helping young people, but inform strategies for making wise investments in key windows of time? Yes, the link to UNICEF's work on children and, and how to develop better programs, especially for adolescents, is uh, is really clear. And it's great to see us moving in the right direction and developing more research in this area that hasn't been explored so much before. So your chapter on adolescent brain development, Windows of Opportunity, or rather your commentary, looks at leveraging and understanding what you describe as modifiable developmental processes. Can you explain a little bit what you mean when you say modifiable and how our knowledge of neuroscience is helping us to identify these key points for intervention and prevention in adolescent development? Yes, and that's a really good and a it's not only a good question, it's addressing a very important issue uh, from our perspective. And that is that in a lot of studies where we're trying to identify risk factors, be they social risk factors like poverty or uh, specific aspects of impoverished environments or stresses or adversity, or biological factors, whether that's the brain or epigenetics or, or um, uh, having a disease, the point is that a risk factor helps us to the degree to which there is something that can be modified. There are a lot of risk factors where we don't understand what could be changed that would alter the trajectory. And there are you know, numerous examples of this where a study reveals a risk factor 
but it's not something either A, that we can change, or B, we're not sure that changing it is actually going to, in a causal way, influence the trajectory. And so the importance of thinking about modifiable factors from a scientific perspective is that we need to really show that changing the risk factor or protective factor or resilience factor actually results in a change in that young person's life or that group of young people's lives. And we have had a lot of humbling, we being the field, and not just adolescent field, but in, in many, many areas, uh, we've had many humbling experiences where we think we understand a risk factor, but it's either not changeable or we change some aspect of it and it doesn't produce the result that we, we need. And so I think this is the place where science can add value. And the second part of this that I think is really important to highlight is that from my perspective personally, the most important insights from the biology aren't about changing the biology or blaming the biology or thinking that explains it. It is that the understanding windows of specialized learning, it doesn't mean we're going to change the window. It's, it means that the kind of learning that occurs during that window will have a larger effect, including if it's bad learning, unhelpful learning, or positive learning that helps that person's life. And so the idea of informing modifiable factors is that it, it shines a light on at least an initial hypothesis that if we could change uh, something in a pattern of behavior and not just learning at the level of, of knowing a fact and remembering it, but, but learning at the level of uh, fundamental skills and, and patterns of reaction to a situation, that changing those during a window of plasticity will have a larger impact on the long-term behavioral patterns for that individual or that group of individuals or that family. And that allows us to then test if it's true, that if we actually do a different kind of education intervention or social support at a key window of time, that it will have a larger positive impact or a longer, more enduring positive impact because it occurs during that window of plasticity. And that's the general idea where I think that the neuroscience and the developmental science has its greatest value. How does it highlight that many of the things that we already know are good or that we think are helpful, how can we, through better timing or better targeting or better ways of administering this help or, or support, actually impact a system, in this case in the brain, can have a bigger impact because of the insight we have related to the developmental science. And there are long, complicated examples, but the principle is pretty simple. At the most basic level, the idea is that even if by having better precision in the timing of an intervention, it's 10% better, when you think about the, the scale of the challenges with one and a half billion adolescents in the world now and 90% and of those in low and middle income countries, the ability to be more efficient in targeting windows of time or, or ways of uh, supporting the most effective kind of learning or behavior change really makes that investment so much more powerful. And having scientific evidence that this is a refinement or a value added really then helps the policies align to you know using this information in a strategic way. You touched a little bit on the importance of timing. In your commentary, you discuss that the onset of 
puberty presents a greater opportunity versus later in adolescence for intervention. And I'm wondering, why is it that early adolescence and the onset of puberty is such an important timing compared to later adolescence when the signs of problems are more likely to emerge? Again, a really central and important question. I'm glad you um, are highlighting this. So let me give a couple examples that I hope illustrate the point. Let's take a very simple physiological process like physical growth. What we know is that the fastest growth in the lifespan is in infancy, and children are continuing to grow at a very steady rate all across childhood. But with the onset of puberty, growth rate accelerates. We call it the pubertal growth spurt. And we know the physiology, we know that the hormones that are um, uh, increasing at, at puberty and the growth factors that they stimulate and how the growth plate responds, um, we know the physiology very clearly. And in the first one to two and a half years after the onset of puberty, which is happening often a year and a half earlier in girls than in boys, the growth rate is going to be much faster. And then in mid-puberty, the growth rate is gonna reverse and start slowing down rapidly. And by the end of puberty, the growth is gonna stop. There's a dynamic change in that growth. As has been shown in a couple studies, if you are in the early phases of that accelerated growth, that because puberty has started and a famine occurs or a war occurs, or you had marginal levels of nutrients that could just barely get by, the impact on adult stunting is gonna be greater. That not only are there data from a couple studies showing this, but it also makes complete sense. If you double your growth rate, or if you have a surge in the metabolic demands, where you're not just growing in height, you're, you're increasing, you're having a number of other metabolic demands with growth and development, then the demands on the system, the dynamic changes in these systems create more demands, which create more vulnerability. You're gonna have a bigger effect, for example, on stunting if the negative impact occurs then. And it's a flexible system, and, and sometimes puberty itself could be delayed if, if there's famine. But the basic idea that that early phase of rapid growth is vulnerable. However, if you flip that around, you can say it's a window of opportunity. What we know is that people talk about establishing a healthy bone bank, having good nutrition, having enough calcium and phosphorus and vitamin D and exercise is gonna strengthen those bones more. That's that the impact of those positive interventions, having more optimal levels are gonna have a bigger impact on the density of that bone. But the point here is not simply about nutrition and bones. It's an analogy for what's happening in the brain. The, the neural systems are also go, undergoing very dynamic changes at the onset of puberty. They're shifting um, in terms of systems of social and emotional learning. A lot of the cognitive systems for learning are, are again, tr undergoing tremendous changes early in infancy and toddlerhood and across childhood. But at the onset of puberty, systems that are involved in social learning trying to understand who you are as an individual and how to navigate a more complex social group and social environment and beginning to have puberty and having a sexual identity, beginning to have the beginnings of an adult social identity, those are really formational times of social learning and the motivation to learn in these new ways. And so the dynamic changes are starting to occur 
early in puberty. They're going to continue all across adolescence. And it's not to say that mid-adolescence or late adolescence is not an opportunity for change or learning. But the, but the inflection point, the beginning of a shift in new directions starts at the onset of puberty. And so relatively smaller influences during that early window of time are likely to have a larger effect across that whole dynamic window. And the reason I took a fair amount of time to give the example of bone growth is because it's so easy to measure and we understand the physiology. It's easier to understand why um, that early phase of accelerated growth is the dynamic window where a little bit of positive scaffolding or a harmful impact is going to have a bigger effect on the trajectory. We have growing evidence that that's also true for social learning systems in the brain. These rapid pivots where kids can shift to these negative spirals of, of beginning to have negative feelings about themselves, be increasingly frustrated, be increasingly feeling like they don't belong or don't have value versus having these igniting passions that get activated at puberty, create increased resilience and engagement and a feeling that even frustrations are just steps along the way to becoming more successful. This capacity to tip that pivot in more positive directions or more negative directions in early to mid-adolescence is something that we think is a really important, but we think the implications of that work suggest that starting a bit earlier, just as puberty starting or right at the early stages of puberty, may be a time when a slight positive nudge or a bit more social scaffolding or a bit a few uh, positive experiences of feeling a sense of belonging and being valued may really kind of prime the pump at a key window of time to have uh, a cascade of more positive effects. Great, thank you. So building on that concept of window of opportunity, turning negative risk into positive windows, I, I want to touch on that and what you also mentioned about negative and positive behavioral spirals. Both now and in your commentary, you discuss how adolescents can experience both negative and positive behavioral spirals. Can you define what a negative and positive behavioral spiral is a bit more and tell us specifically what emerging evidence is showing to influence these behavioral spirals and also how neuroplasticity plays a role in these spiral effects. Okay, that's a full menu of, um, so no, actually it's, it's, again, it really, it highlights the key set of concepts that I, that I, I want to help to, to explain and illustrate. And, and these metaphors of spirals um, uh, are, are, are really important here and, and build it directly from what you were just asking in terms of this idea of early adolescence. I'm going to give a couple examples here. The first one is going to build on uh, what is often the sort of stereotypical image of adolescence, which is the increase in risk-taking. And that allows us to think about risk-taking not only in the ways that people tend to highlight as a concern of da physically dangerous things that adolescents can do and the harmful thrill-seeking or you know, physical danger, but rather the social risks. Because part of what happens at the onset of puberty is this increase in sensation seeking and a tendency to, bit, to be a bit bolder or be more likely to approach something that, that, you, that you feel afraid of or you're uncertain about. And 
while we recognize that there's tremendous individual differences, they're going to be shy kids that stay very shy all through adolescence, and they're kids that were really bold long before they hit puberty. But acknowledging those individual differences, the tendency to become a bit bolder and a bit more risk-taking clearly happens biologically as young people go in, into puberty. But the way that can manifest is actually more likely to be positive than negative. Uh, what, and, if you, and you have to think across different contexts, but raising your hand in class, going out for a leadership position, uh, trying a sport, um, trying something new, telling someone that you like them, risking trying to develop a new friendship or a relationship, those are actually riskier things for the emotional experience of a young person than a physical danger. I think we can all remember how terrifying those experiences were in early to mid-adolescence. If young people didn't have some tendency to take risks and try things, um, they would probably be more likely to, to withdraw and be socially isolated because it's a very scary period of time. And this tendency to take some risks and have some difficult or challenging experiences can be wonderful learning experiences. If the risk-taking and trying new things and experimenting with who you are and how to navigate the complex social world that's confusing around you leads to some intermittent successes. Um, if those experiences occur, um, and it's, I'm going to use this word prestige, um, not because that word is or the jargon, but it, but it's because the idea is that contribute in valuable ways. We, that can begin a positive we would spiral. often kind of use the word status, that young people become sensitive to status, that they want to, to be admired, they want to if be um, uh, more successful in some way, that that's really part of the goal. story that we if know happens in terms of as these hormones you know, influence these neural systems. But in humans, place, as opposed to many species where this has been studied, we have a unique opportunity in this learning system to not want to have higher status, but rather to earn prestige that is shaped by the cultures and the and the mentors and, and, and emotional influences in our lives at that time. Earning prestige by being good, by being kind, by giving, by having a positive impact. Um, that's part of what young people become hungrier for. Uh, it's not that it's a highly individualistic cultural uh, variant. It's, it's, it's that the idea that this could lead, this desire to earn prestige and to be valued uh, as an emerging adult, uh, trying to figure out where one's niche is to contribute and be valued, and how the culture and the social environment shape that hunger for prestige and to earn prestige and to give young people experiences of earning prestige through healthy processes. I think that's one of the most intriguing dimension or slices into the learning is to understand that these sort of vague, soft ideas about cultural values in terms of what leads to prestige and admiration, and where are young people getting the messages that shape their feelings, not the words they would say or what they believe they should say, but what do they really feel are routes to earning prestige. 
that learning may turn out to be one of the most important aspects of our, our insights into this space. Because again, getting back to your first question, what, what's modifiable? We're not going to go in and change young people's brains or their hormones or uh, you know put them through some special training exercise. What we can do is recognize that certain kinds of learning experiences, what feels prestigious, what opportunities they have to give and contribute that could be healthy for them and for their, their social group, that learning, understanding the importance of those kinds of learning experiences in early adolescence can become a negative spiral could really have this need to be tested we need to understand it more scientifically and if these ideas are correct um, which which I think the evidence is suggesting increasingly they are then the implications for interventions that can capture and honor young people's desire for healthy ways of earning prestige and the importance of having those positive experiences early in adolescence could really have some very interesting and important policy implications. But thousands of experiences that are consistent with those heartfelt goals and values. The basic idea that these are systems that include cognitive components, social components, and affective or feeling components those systems are interacting in new ways in adolescence. This ability to think about yourself in the future and have feelings negatively and positively about yourself and about your goals and about contribution values and giving to others and being a kind person or an honest person, those, those circuits that represent those thoughts and feelings linked together and influencing motivations, not what you make yourself do, but what you feel in a heartfelt way you want to do, are actively being shaped. And those represent spirals of opportunity and spirals of vulnerability. It was really a good uh, breakdown of those concepts and great examples as well. Really briefly, just because I think that this is a concept that some people interested in this topic may want to have explained just a little bit better, how would you define neuroplasticity in terms of how it affects brain development for the adolescent? The simplest way to describe neuroplasticity in layman's terms is, is that it's a period of specialized learning. And that is that all kinds of learning is going to influence the brain. That's just fundamental. When neurons fire, when neurons that fire together, wire together, and so when we learn something, that's, instant, it's, that's instantiated in the brain. However, there are windows of development when the way that learning occurs has a larger impact on the brain. And that's why we say that the brain is plastic, as if it's softer, uh, it's more malleable, it's more easily shaped or sculpted by the experiences. And so plasticity is really the idea that as learning occurs, and again, this is not getting information and facts and remembering them. That's a very narrow subset of learning. Most learning is like learning skills and learning how to control your behavior and learning how to link feelings and goals and actions together. It's, 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 it's really complex learning. And plasticity um, is really about a window of time that it, at, at one level the brain expects certain kinds of experiences to occur and the early patterns of experience have longer impact. We know this 
most deeply for early brain development. The first language, the brain expects to learn a language. It doesn't need to be taught a language. It just needs to be exposed to a language. But the first language it's exposed to has long-term effects. Um, and, and similarly, uh, children don't need to be taught how to walk. They just need an opportunity to learn how to walk, and the brain will figure out how to do those things. In adolescence, the kind of learning that's plastic isn't about learning how to talk or walk or, or learn a language. It's learning how to have a social identity in a complex set of social hierarchies and social processes. And it's having a new sense of agency. Um, it's becoming sexually mature, having more power in your, and, and uh, having more interest in how uh, power and status and prestige, um, not in an abstract way, not that kids think of those words. They're just incredibly sensitive to whether they're being admired or disrespected, whether they feel a sense of belonging, uh, and what kinds of behaviors lead them to feel recognized and valued. And that learning is that set of connections between neural systems um, of, of, of these cognitive processes and emotions are more plastic. They're wiring up together for the first time in new complex ways. And therefore, the kinds of experiences and the kinds of learning that young people have are going to have a deeper effect on the shaping of these neural systems uh, patterns of connections. So you mentioned that some key principles hold some great promise from translating this emerging developmental science into solutions, policy interventions for adolescents. What would you say are some key principles that stand out specifically that look promising in this regard? So I'm going to pick two. I'm going to pick them at, at, at two ends of the, the extreme on the this, on this spectrum, um, since we only have a little time. The first is that the general message that adolescence is a time of dynamic learning, really foundational, formational learning about self and others, and that it's a time that we should be investing in supporting positive learning experiences. And I think that that message, that the more deeply we understand all of the things you asked about in terms of plasticity and these spirals, that we should be recognizing that even though people have a negative attitude about adolescence and kind of want to wait until their brain is finished developing to deal with them later, or uh, that's, that's the wrong message. I think this idea that the more we're learning, uh, the last thing we should do is wait until their brain's finished developing. What we need to do is actively engage them in positive learning. And the earlier in adolescence that, that those positive experiences happen, the greater the positive impact. So I think that's that, that at the most general level in terms of policy implications, you know, recognizing that that window from 10 to 14 or from the onset of the first couple of years after the onset of puberty is a, is, a, is a time to invest in creating positive social learning experiences. That's great. Thank you so much, Ron, for taking the time to answer our questions. This has been really enlightening in, in unpacking the Adolescent Brain Compendium, and we really appreciate you joining us today for this call. Oh, thank you. Great questions. I think we got into some interesting aspects of these issues. Look forward to keeping up with you in the Adolescent Brain space soon. 
please download the Adolescent Brain Compendium today at unicef-irc.org slash adolescent-brain. And for more updates on the Adolescent Brain and other research coming out of the UNICEF Innocenti Office of Research, please follow us on Twitter at UNICEF Innocenti and visit the UNICEF Innocenti Facebook page at facebook.com slash UNICEF Innocenti. Thanks for joining us.